Like, I get it. I need to forgive others. And God asks that of me. He commands it of me. But what about myself? How do I move past shame? How do I let go of guilt? How do I stop those memories from assaulting me over and over again? I get it because I've been there. I've lived in that place of a slow death, of eating myself from the inside out. But I also know that there's freedom in Jesus. There's freedom in repentance. Now, you might want to get in here and say, like, but I've, I've repented. I've asked God for forgiveness, and I'm still dealing with this shame. I'm still dealing with the guilt. I've asked God for forgiveness. I've repented. And still, those memories keep me up at night, and I don't know what to do. And my question back to you would be, you have repented, but have you sat long enough with Jesus to restoration? Because they're both part of repentance. Have you sat long enough with him in this moment of healing to get to the joy? Which can sound so strange when we're thinking about our brokenness. How do we look at it with joy? We're going to get there. And as I've been, this is a long wrestling. This isn't just a today wrestling. This is a long wrestling. I've been wrestling with two seemingly contradictory things. And how do we hold both together, especially when we talk about repentance. How do we honor our createdness and acknowledge our fallenness without minimizing either one? Let me unpack that for a moment. How do we honor that we are created in the image of God, each of us? You have fingerprints of God on you. You are an image bearer of God Almighty, whether you have accepted Jesus or not, that is true of you as a human being, and still acknowledge our humanity and our sin nature. How do we acknowledge our brokenness in a way that still honors the image of God in us? Because here's something that I hear often when we're thinking about repentance. I am the scum of the earth. I am the lowest of low. Do you know what I know can't be true if you're an image bearer of God? You can't be the scum of the earth. Because you carry the very nature of God stamped upon you. And God is not the scum of the earth, so neither are you. So how do we honor that? That we are created in the image of God most high and acknowledge our brokenness. In the reality of who we are. But also, how do we acknowledge our sin nature without minimizing our need of a savior? Because we are sinful, and we are broken, and we are fallen. And that createdness of being image bearers of God doesn't save us from the need for a redeemer. So how do we hold both without minimizing the other? repentance. Now, I grew up in a, in a 
kind of church culture where I have seen repentance swing both ways. I've seen us lean too heavily on grace that almost borders on arrogance. Like, of course Jesus would forgive me. Look how wonderful I am. And we can treat that moment of salvation as kind of a one-and-done thing where we no longer have to come back over and over and over to this place of forgiveness and repentance. We don't need to apologize anymore because we're the beloved of God. God understands our humanity. He loves us. Why would he want us to be uncomfortable before him? Well, that's not really true. It honors our createdness, but it doesn't acknowledge our fallenness. And on the other hand, I've seen repentance lean too heavily on wrath. I would say this is probably where I grew up, leading to fear, leading to kind of tiptoeing around God lest he sees how wicked and broken I really am. Where moments like this beautiful thing that just happened, the thought in the back of my head would be, Please, God, don't out me. Don't reveal my brokenness to everyone. Where this acknowledgement of our brokenness lacked the mercy of our createdness in a way where I just felt incredible shame and fear coming into the presence of God Almighty. I would be constantly looking over my shoulder. The favorite saying of youth pastors when I grew up was, if Jesus came back and you were doing what you were doing, would you go to heaven? What kind of warped theology is that? That's completely wrong. But I grew up in this moment of seeing repentance as this thing. Have you ever played that game like Mother May I? You kind of try and tiptoe your way. Mother May I take five steps. And when mother feels like maybe the person is getting too close to touching them, they spin around and anybody that moves has to go back to the starting line. That's how I felt with God. Like if I just tiptoed, if I didn't draw enough attention to myself, if I could just make it into his presence without him casting his gaze on me and seeing my wrongness and having to go back to the starting point, then maybe this time he could forgive me fully. Both get it wrong. Both set us up to have a relationship with our heavenly father that is so distorted. We have this beautiful moment in Luke 11 where Jesus is teaching on prayer, and I'm going to fully take it out of context. So apologies right off the bat, but follow with me. And here's what Jesus says. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then... Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And I want to grab the same logic from this for a moment and apply it to repentance. Now, I'm not a father. I'm not a dad, clearly. I am a mom. But I do have kids. Here's what I know of my relationship with my kids. If they mess up, if they get in trouble, if they go to the worst of their worst, their lowest of their low, I want them to come to me. I don't want them to be afraid of me. I want them to know my deep love for them, that I am for them always. Maybe not for their wants, but I am for their best. If they need help, I want them to come to me because I am a safe place for them to receive help. Now, if I, as a mother, though I am evil, desire for my kids in their lowest moments to come to me, how much more does our Father in heaven who is perfect in love and perfect in justice and perfect in mercy desire us when we are at our lowest, when we are at our most broken, when we are at our most sinful, to come to him too because we need help? And where else would we go when we need help but to our Father, our protector, our provider, our healer? Where else would we turn than a good father? When my kids come to me in their moments of brokenness, will there be correction? Maybe. Will there be discipline? Maybe. Because I want their best. But that's not a deterrent. I would never turn them away. And if I can treat my children with grace, how much more does our perfect Father desire us to come to him in repentance? Let's pray. Father God, you are perfect in all things. You are perfect in justice. You are perfect in mercy. You are a perfect father. You are a perfect shepherd who guides us, who leads us into paths of righteousness for your name's sake and for our good. And so as we look through this psalm of repentance, Holy Spirit, would you pull out those places where we have believed something other about you has kept us from coming to you in our brokenness, has built a wall where we try to hide and protect ourselves instead of running to you for help? Would you speak the truth of who you are? 
And so spirit of truth, lead and guide us in truth today. Allow my own words to fade away, but Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? In your precious name, amen. We're going to look through Psalm 51, and it's this beautiful psalm of repentance. And the words are going to be on the screen. But in case you're sitting here going, that's fine and dandy. But you've told us some of your story, and you seem like a pretty good kid. And I was, unlike my brother. I was wonderful. Just ask my parents. Like, what did you really have to repent of? What did you really have to look over your shoulder for? Like, that's fine for you to say that, but you don't know what I've done. So for all of the skeptics and the doubters, let me read the opening of Psalm 51 for you. The part that we don't usually read. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David committed adultery with Bathsheba. At the best, this is a moment when David committed adultery and in order to cover his tracks, killed the husband of the wife or the woman he was having an affair with. At best. At worst, and this would be my belief about this situation, is David saw a woman he wasn't able to have and in a rape of power, because what choice did she have? Raped this woman, sent her back to her home to seduce and manipulate her husband to cover his tracks, so put all of the responsibility of covering this on her, because if she was found out, remember, she would be stoned. And then when that didn't work, killed her husband and took her for his own. At best, he's an adulteress or adulterer and a murderer. At worst, he's a rapist and a murderer. So whatever your past, David's is probably worse. Okay, let's keep going. Psalm 51. Here we go. This is David's prayer of repentance. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion to build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. In burnt offerings offered whole, then bowls will be offered on your altar. David begins with this earnest plea for repentance. He completely owns his sin. He's keenly aware of his wrongdoings, and he isn't trying to justify or defend his way out of it. He just comes before God wholly wrong, wholly in error, wholly sinful, wholly broken. He just comes before him. David Guzik writes, David didn't say my punishment is ever before me or my consequences are ever before me. What bothered him was his sin. Many grieve over the consequences of sin but few over sin itself. There are consequences David is walking through as he's penning this psalm. At this moment, his son is dying. At this moment, Bathsheba is a broken, tattered woman. At this moment, his, son, his sin has been exposed. It's not the consequences. It's the separation with God. It's the brokenness in this relationship with God that he's feeling so keenly. God, right now, I'm fully aware. And I desire to be clean. I desire to be forgiven. I desire to be restored. There are consequences coming for David, apart from the ones he's currently experiencing. He's going to walk through terrible things in the future as a result of this sin. There are others he's wrong that he's going to have to provide for and atone to, but David understands this about sin, and I think sometimes we forget it. When we sin against God, it spills out on people. Our sin really isn't against people. They're just casualties of sin against God. If I go apart from the way that God has set for me to live, it's going to have disastrous effects on people. But my sin needs to be atoned to God, and it will take time, and it will be painful. 
but it will be beautiful. And I think some of what David is praying gets lost in translation because we have all of these beautiful machines that wash things for us. We just push a button, and everything that went in dirty comes out clean. But every time that David speaks of getting washed, it's a unique word for washing that involves feet. It involves a wash tub and literally treading on the garments in the tub to make them clean. What he is asking of God isn't just like a rinse underwater kind of purification. A easy rinse underwater kind of repentance. What David is coming before God and saying is, God, I am so broken. I am so disgusted with the sin within me that I want you to stomp on me until it's eradicated. I don't want the easy way out. I want you to take this heart that is evil and broken, and I don't want you to stop until it's pure. So tread on me. Stomp out the impurities. Wash me. Make me new. Do whatever you have to do. That's a gutsy prayer. Sorry is only part of repentance. Repentance is sitting with God long enough for him to stomp out the sin within us. And here's the thing that always gets me about this prayer. There are few people I would give that kind of permission to. Like, here's what I want you to do, person on the other side of me. I want you to expose all of my evil. I give you permission to hurt me for my good. There are few people in the world I would trust enough to give that kind of permission to. And here's David at his lowest and his vilest, and he has complete certainty in the character of God. Complete trust that God isn't going to do one thing that isn't for his best. That all of the pain is completely necessary. What do your prayers of repentance sound like? I know my prayers of repentance. They often sound like begging. They often sound so full of self-hatred and self-loathing. 
And they often put that same feeling on God. But to steal a line from Dress Conley, does that sound like your good father? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Do we understand? Do we truly understand how much God loves us and how much he hates sin? Or do we get it mixed up? Let me dumb it down for you for a moment. I'm going to pull a parenting thing out of the archives. You're welcome, children, by the way. When my kids were first starting to understand conflict resolution, they didn't do it in healthy ways. Surprise. Often, if there was a battle of wills between my kids, fists would fly. Now, I believe that there are moments of parenting that require action and moments of parenting that require compassion and connection. This is an action moment. Here's why. At three and five, they were not doing much harm to each other. But they wouldn't stay three and five. They would grow up to the point where the younger brother would be physically bigger and stronger than his older sister. And if the way that they continued to deal with their conflict was to punch one another, she would probably be knocked out eventually. Not only that, it might cause chaos in our home, but if that's how they learned, this is okay. It's okay to solve conflict with violence. What happens in school? What happens in a future marriage? What happens at work? If I didn't stomp out, not that we literally stomped on our children, if I didn't stomp out the sin now, the possible outcomes would be disastrous. And so as a loving parent, we had to discipline and course correct our kids. Did it change our love for them? Absolutely not. Did we love the punching? Absolutely not. We hated the punching. We loved them. And because we loved them, we acted. Because we loved them, we said, this is not acceptable for you. Because we love them, we said, when you do this, there are consequences for you because this won't be who you are. God loves you. He hates sin. Why? Because it creates a barrier in his relationship with you. Because he knows if he doesn't act now, the outcomes for your future are disastrous and he hates that. He hates it for you. Because he loves you so much. And because he loves you so much, when sin comes into your life, he's going to act. When sin comes into your life, he's going to correct you. 
When sin comes into your life, he's going to discipline you, not because he hates you, because he loves you that much. And if I, though I am evil, can love my kids like that, how much more does a good and perfect father love you? True repentance is coming before God in complete surrender, saying this is going to hurt, but God, don't stop. Don't stop until my heart is clean before you. God, this is going to hurt because you're going to have to cut things out of me that have been comfortable to hold on to. You're going to have to expose things that I have rather kept hidden. But don't stop. Tread on me until I am washed clean. And as we do that, we find restoration. Because God doesn't leave us that I forgive you. Growing up, I was taught that repentance is saying sorry and then doing a 180 degree turn away from your sin and walking in that direction. It's the go and sin no more, like Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, and that's true. But I think it misses a critical piece of repentance. It misses restoration. And for years, I feel like for me, I would come before God in true repentance, in true brokenness. And he would wash out the wounds, and he would bandage them up, And then I would say, okay, great, thanks. And get up and walk away. Just covered in unhealed but clean wounds. Because I didn't sit long enough for there to be restoration. See, sin grows best in secret. And shame grows best in silence. And so for years, I would continue hiding my brokenness. I would continue to come before God and get him to clean and bandage me, but not fully healed. And that shame would continue to grow. One of the things that you might have heard, because I'm pretty open with it, you might not, is that when I was a little girl, I was sexually abused. And in my childhood, I repeated what had been done to me with friends. Now, as an adult who teaches these kinds of courses, and who understands what trauma-informed ministry looks like, I know what was happening in that moment. That I was trying to get eyes on me. 
I was trying to get somebody to pay attention in the only way that I knew how. But for decades, any time I would get in front of people to do ministry, the enemy would whisper in my ear, but they just don't know. They don't know what you did. And if they did, you'd be ruined. And the shame would assault me over and over and over. Till at one retreat, it was crippling. We were worshiping and I couldn't even lift my head. And that afternoon, we were in a hotel room and Lucas was sitting watching TV on the bed and I can tell you everything about that moment. I came out of the bathroom having worked up the courage to finally say my sin. And I remember him reaching across the bed, inviting me to come and cuddle and watch this show. And I perched on the very edge and I said, you don't want to touch me. Because as soon as I tell you what I'm going to tell you, you'll never want to touch me again. And I unpacked everything. And you know what I saw in his face? Complete compassion. He didn't feel disgusted by me. He wept with me. He wept with the little girl who was screaming for help in the only way she knew how. He wept with the woman who had carried decades of trauma and shame because she believed the lie of her enemy. In his grace, I saw the grace of God. And all of a sudden, that shame, it lost its power on me. It lost its hold. And God could take what had been broken, not my sin, but what had been broken and use it to help other people find healing and wholeness. There's a reason that God in his wisdom tells us in James 5:16, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you'll be healed. Not so you'll be forgiven. So you'll be healed. Because shame grows in silence. God already forgave. And God doesn't just desire forgiveness for you. He desires restoration for you. He desires healing for you. Not walking around in clean wounds, but walking around with a new heart that has been fully restored 
David wasn't content to have a transactional moment with God where he said, here's my sin, give me your forgiveness. No, he sat with him until even the guilt, he prays that, remove the guilt of bloodshed. He sat with him until shame lost its power, until guilt lost its power. Does it still hurt to go back in the memories? Yeah. But is it healed and restored? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Because we serve a God who's too good to leave us limping around. Cleaned, but broken and wounded. The work of restoration is this, Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Jesus died to make you new, to pay your debt, to fulfill the transaction. But more than that, he wants to restore your soul. And there's a joy in that, in understanding how great grace is, how deep love is, how incredible compassion is. There's a joy in holding on to both our createdness and our fallenness. Because in our fallenness, we get to acknowledge a God who loves us so much. In our brokenness, we get to experience a savior. John Piper wrote, being broken and contrite is not against joy and praise and witness. It's the flavor of Christian joy and praise and witness. I ask the worship team to come up. Friends, you are created in the image of God Almighty. Just like we can look at any child and point out features and attributes and patterns of speaking and maybe the way they shrug their shoulders and think, wow, that's so much like your dad. We can look at you and we can see the same. We can see the parts of you and think, wow, isn't that beautiful? That's so much like our Heavenly Father. Because you were created to showcase Him. There's a part of you that is beautiful and valuable, and nothing will ever change that. But you're also fallen. You're also sinful. There's also a part of you that will forever war with the holiness of God. 
acknowledging it doesn't change your value. It actually unlocks it. Because in acknowledging it, you have to acknowledge a Savior who loves you enough to come and pay the price for it. So what do you do with the shame? What do you do with the guilt? What do you do with the memories? Beth Gilkenberger, it's a great name. It will always be a great name. In her book, Throw the First Punch, asks, what would your enemy want to happen here? Here's what I know the enemy of my soul wanted for me. He wanted me to get up forgiven but not healed. Repent repentant but not restored. He wanted me to believe the lies of shame and guilt. He wanted to keep me stuck in patterns of brokenness. So I didn't walk confidently into what God had for me. And he wants the same for you. So what do we do with the shame and the guilt and the memories? We wait. We sit. We wrestle. We say, God, I'm going to be right here until you tread all of this out until you take this heart of stone and you replace it with a heart of flesh. I'm gonna be here until you create a new heart within me, until you give me a steadfast spirit, until you purify me, my priest, with hyssop and make me new. I'm gonna wait, I'm gonna wrestle. I'm not gonna be quiet, but what your grace has done, I'm not gonna let shame grow. In silence, I'm gonna tell of your mighty works. Paul Carter wrote, his story, David's, is the ugliest and most beautiful story in all the Bible. It's the story of an ugly sin and a beautiful savior. Let me add, so is yours. Yours is the ugliest and most beautiful story. Ugly sin, we all have it. And a beautiful savior who loves you so much. Father God, we thank you for repentance. Thank you that we don't have to dodge our way around things to come before you. You just invite us to come with all of our brokenness and all of our ugly. You invite us to come. You invite us to tell you all of our real, all of the sin 
that you don't condemn us. But God, we're not content with I'm sorry's. We're not content for you to bandage up those places of brokenness and then send us back out because we were too impatient to wait. No, God, would you tread on my heart until it's clean. Would you wash me and purify me? Would you help me to understand how disgusting my sin is before you? Not because you hate me, but because you love me. And you don't want anything standing between you and your kids. But would you help us not to stop at repentance, but to walk to restoration, to wait until you heal, until you restore, until you remove the guilt and the shame, until you take that heart of stone out of our chest and replace it with a heart of flesh until you renew our spirit so that we can walk in your ways of holiness and righteousness because we can't do it without you. Do you help us not to be content until our deepest lows become our shouts of praise, until our tragedy becomes our testimony? the ugliest of sin and a beautiful savior. We trust you. We love you. Your precious name. Well, friends, I asked Lucas to pull out a hymn for us. And so maybe you're familiar with it. There is a new bridge <laughs> that we're going to add into it. But would you do what you feel comfortable with. If you just maybe want to sit and meditate on these words, feel free to do so. But if you want to stand and join us as we sing, we also want to invite you to that.